Ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet, welcome back to yet another episode of Crypto Over Coffee. Hope you're doing well today. And if you're new here, every Saturday we start off the weekend right by breaking down the latest news and the hottest topics in the world of technology and cryptocurrency whilst drinking a cup of delicious coffee. Now, with that being said, in today's episode, we've got the latest Bitcoin price analysis, some DeFi news, VeChain news, and our usual 404 Logic Not Found segment. So make sure you stick around for all the updates we've got today. Uh, but before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, I want to propose a, a coffee toast to a really special person who left us far too soon this past week. Uh, she had a profound impact on my life, and this is one way that I know that I can honor her at least in some small way. So uh, we love you, Reed. Rest in peace. And uh, anyone who's watching, raise uh, a coffee in, in support. Thanks, guys, for that. And uh, let's kick it off with questions from you, as we always do at the beginning of these episodes. And uh, if you want one of your questions answered, leave them in the comments down below. You can tweet me at Hashoshi4, or you can leave them in the Hashoshi Discord chat as well. Uh, and if you would be so inclined as well, please do subscribe to the channel, hit the bell notification button, and you'll get a heads up whenever I post new stuff here on the channel. So let's go ahead and get started with these questions. Now, this first question is from Antichris. Uh, hey, Hashoshi, what are your favorite exchanges with the widest range of tradable altcoins? Uh, and this is a question that I get fairly often. Now, this is, of course, dependent on where you are regionally in the world and where you have access to different exchanges. Personally, one that I know is, is available in, in many different regions and many different places is uh, Kraken. I think Kraken is one that I, I've been critical of in the past because it, they haven't always been the best, but I will tell you they have made so many strides in coin support, in bringing staking support, in offering the best possible suite of, of security tools to secure your account from hackers and, and your account being being used against you in a SIM swap attack, for example. And so it's a place that I really think has a lot of value. Of course, the usual players out there um, are some of the go-tos. You could say Binance. A lot of people use Binance. I personally prefer not to use Binance. That's personal preference. Um, so Kraken is my go-to. I also use Voyager. I use uh, Shapeshift, which we're going to talk about more, and they've just changed the game with their latest release. So we'll talk about that in the episode. Make sure you stick around. Um, but if you're in other places, let's say if you're in Canada, uh, Endax and Coinberry are both pretty good places to go. Uh, and if you're in Asia, again, uh, it depends very much regionally on where you are. So you have to look up locally uh, what's available in your country. Uh, so hopefully that answers your question and thank you so much for it. Uh, next question is from uh, Kyle Barrio, Barros. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. <laughs> it's really hard to read some of these names sometimes. Uh, what happens to the transaction fees when there is no more new Bitcoin uh, left to reward miners? So when that block subsidy runs out and it's estimated to be around 2140, uh, won't sky transaction fees skyrocket, making it prohibitive for new investors? Now, this is another question that I think, you know, especially people who are new to the space or people who are just starting to understand the underlying way that Bitcoin works really get curious about. So the way Bitcoin works today is very much so miners are incented to perform the really costly and, and intensive work that's necessary to validate transactions to complete proof of work, which is critical to the security model and the value proposition of Bitcoin. And that block subsidy that happens, it's programmed into the code. That's where you hear about the 21 million supply cap, that subsidy that comes 
in in each block that's mined as a reward to miners is the way that supply is inflated to that 21 million cap now at the point at which we reach 21 million in total created supply in terms of number of bitcoins in existence not circulating but in existence there's a critical difference there people wonder what's going to happen after that to to mining is mining going to collapse is bitcoin going to collapse in 2140 when the last bitcoin is created the answer that i have for you is not a concrete one because these are all theories at this point i believe that one of two things, or actually probably both of these things will come to fruition. The first one is that I think transaction fees theoretically were intended to be an adequate replacement for the payment in terms of block subsidy that miners must make. The cost of mining is not going to continue to increase at the same rate theoretically, again, that Bitcoin's price would. And so theoretically, if you were to gather transaction fees, excuse me, from each transaction that you mine in in a block, then you could, you know, you could make yourself whole as a miner. But I do also think that it will take the community to build out a treasury. And there's a theory that I have, and I know that other people have started to talk about this as well, that the Satoshi Bitcoin that is set aside in the Satoshi era wallets that haven't moved in years and years and years and years, uh, the, that that is set aside for a community treasury to pay miners to continue continuously sustain mining for basically the rest of time. Now, how that would realistically be managed in a decentralized way, that's another thing. Those are questions. Realistically, we're probably going to have to wait and find out, but I don't know for sure that a protocol change would be necessary to solve this problem. I think um, the economics will end up working out. So I know I don't have a concrete answer for you, but I do think that this has been considered. And there are lots of theories about what Satoshi and also what people think will happen uh, as a result. Uh, so thank you very much for your question. Uh, third question of the day is from Ismail Ismail. Thank you so much for your question, sir. Uh, can you please explain the fee difference between normal ETH transactions and a smart contract transaction on DeFi? Are we paying the fee to the ETH system itself or to the platform we are using? Uh, so the way that this generally works is that when you call a smart contract function, which is how basically all these DeFi products work, you're calling a smart contract function or functions plural. When that happens, your transaction is being fed as a, an invocation to a piece of code in a smart contract. That smart contract has been uh, compiled to what is called bytecode. And bytecode really is the commands within the Ethereum virtual machine that governs this whole system in terms of what opcodes, what operations uh, need to be performed on the actual data uh, to change state, to move balances, to do this and this and that, right? And each of those each of those opcodes or operations has a cost in gas. And so when you execute a transaction in a DeFi ecosystem, you are paying gas fees equivalent to the complexity and the pricing of the operations that you are trying to perform. Generally storing data, modifying state, uh, making multiple transactions, those things incur you greater cost because it takes more uh, compute resources to validate the input and output of those transactions in the stateful network. So that being said, the difference between an ETH transfer is that rather than just paying for the the space and time that it takes in terms of processing and data, etc., for miners to validate the transfer of ether from A to B, and you know managing the balances on either side 
you're also paying for compute operations that might have varying levels of complexity in terms of a DeFi smart contract. And so the gas you're paying for is generally at a base level covering those overhead costs of the network performing this action for you. The second component is there are often fees built into those smart contracts that sort of shave a percentage off. And in the DeFi space especially, this is very common. Uh, so you'll pay 1% of the total value exchanged, for example, in, in a swap protocol or something to that effect. So you need to look at those fees specifically inside the actual uh not not the protocol, but looking at the the actual DeFi smart contract that you're working with, because those are programmed differently, and those fees are not going to show up in the gas fee section that you pay for the transactions in EtherScan, for example. So I know that there's a lot going on there, and it would take me probably a full video to explain this in more detail, but that gives you a general idea of the differences between the two. And next question is from Gordy Boy. What can be better has Shoshi coffee and quality streams. Hey man, I'm really glad that you are interested in the content. Thanks so much. Many people will be in profit now due to crypto rising, but like me, I wonder, should I take profit? When is the best time? Do I reinvest? Now, this is a question a lot of people are asking. Again, makes perfect sense why you would be asking this because crypto is at all time highs again. My advice is you should always be taking profit along the way. I personally set waypoints. I say if it hits... Uh, for example, if it hits 35K, if we get a new all-time high, I'm going to take out 2% of my total holdings as profit. And I'll move that to cash. It, first of all, is a way for you to keep yourself honest. You set these things in advance. You don't have to make emotional decisions in the moment. Uh, and the best time, really, it's subjective to you. You can't ever really time the market. So that's why it's best to just set yourself places where you would take a little bit of profit and not make huge, huge moves and then in terms of reinvesting, again, that's personal preference. If you sell out 2% at 35K and it has a $5,000 drop and you want to buy back in with that same amount of money and sort of re-leverage, that's totally up to you. But honestly, I think that, that is a, that's a strategic decision that you have to make in the moment. And remember, it can always go either way. So just be aware of the risks and use good risk management. And of course, no financial advice here. But with that, folks, that's going to do it for the questions. Let's dive into the news section. And just a friendly reminder, please be aware of scammers that are in the comments that are posing as me. They're often posting phone numbers or WhatsApp or Instagram handles and stuff to get you to contact them. That is not me. If the comment does not have a name highlighted like you see how on the screen, it isn't me and you can go ahead and report them. And for those of you who are new here every week in partnership with the folks at Kobo, they make the awesome Kobo Vault Wallet in case you didn't know. I'm giving away a Kobo Tablet Steel Seed Phrase backup device in every episode of Crypto Over Coffee. So all you have to do to enter the random draw is to comment on the video or comment on the podcast itself, leave a review on the podcast, and I'll pick a winner each week. So just for transparency though, the product is only available in select regions. So if you win and you're from another region that is not supported, I will just send you some Bitcoin instead. And the winner of last week's giveaway for the Kobo is in fact, this person right here on the screen. You can see the random draw for transparency. Whew. So big congratulations to you, of course, and I will be in touch. Now, everyone's probably ready for this weekly dose of Bitcoin price analysis. So we can go ahead and dive into that now. We started the week at around 32,000 US dollars per Bitcoin, with the market still trending bullish in terms of sentiment and really in terms of volume. And it's hard to say whether it is in spite of or because of the turmoil in the United States politically 
or the additional stimulus and economic pressures that are mounting globally across the board, not just in the US, but Bitcoin has broken all-time highs now multiple times this week. Now, at the time of recording, we just recently broke 41K US dollars per Bitcoin, a monumental milestone, and it's still running. So it by the time this is done recording and editing, it may have already surpassed this. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. These constant moves upward are far from guaranteed, and people need to be aware that downward movement is also possible, if not likely, so prepare accordingly. That being said, it is truly a realization for the rest of the market across institutions, retail, regulators, etc., that Bitcoin is here to stay, and it is behaving differently than it was in 2017. After the first big run-up in 2017, things really felt fickle and shaky. There was a lot of misplaced confidence in the crypto echo chambers, but apart from that, everything was very uneasy, and it showed in the 2018 crash down to earth. But this bull run phase has felt very different, to me at least. The sentiment is different. The market conditions are very different. The world is different. And I don't think we can use 2017 as a litmus test anymore for where we're going to go from here. These are uncharted waters, folks. There could be a rogue wave that, you know, knocks us off the boat for a bit, but I truly believe that we are seeing in real time Bitcoin stepping into its place as the next generation store of value for the masses around the world. And even the people that are asking me for help investing in Bitcoin during this crazy run up are doing so with different intentions. They want to hold it for retirement, not make a quick buck. And that is about as bullish a sentiment as I have ever seen. Now, in other news related to Bitcoin, another interesting turn in the Lightning Network saga has taken place. A Visa-backed startup run by Bitcoin faithful Jack Mallers called Zap just announced its launch of a marquee service called Strike Global, which uses the Bitcoin Lightning Network for payment remittance. Now, for those unfamiliar, Lightning is a layer two protocol that sits on top of the Bitcoin network, which is an L1, layer one, and it allows for cheaper, faster transactions that can be, in effect, batch validated on the Bitcoin network itself for finality when needed, but otherwise rapidly used to exchange Bitcoin in private channels. Now, in effect, it's a scalability solution for Bitcoin to take some load off. But my description is very oversimplified for brevity, so please bear that in mind. Don't go around saying that this is the end-all be-all description of Lightning. Anyway, Strike Global is the most compelling implementation that I've seen for Lightning, and it will allow payment remittance in really moments, regardless of the presence of a well-developed banking system locally to where it's being used. This means that in places where no rich crypto exchange or banking ecosystem exists, like underdeveloped places in Africa, payments can be made using Strike quickly in Bitcoin, for example, and then converted over to local currency using localized methods like P2P, Bitcoin ATMs, and the like. Strike largely offers a Bitcoin-based alternative to some of the other payment processing platforms for day-to-day -day transactions like Venmo, who have vastly simplified the means by which individuals can pay one another and exchange value. So this could be very successful when Visa cards come out along with it. And uh, I'm telling you, watch out for Strike Global. It's a very interesting product. Now, in other news, I noticed recently that the search traffic on Google for Ethereum is at an all-time high, just as Ethereum's native coin ether is reaching its all-time high price or at least hovering around it now what's interesting about this fact is that despite all the talk in the markets broadly about ethereum killers and how screwed ethereum is going to be because ethereum 2.0 is very slow going it's not out yet ethereum still seems to be 
a dominant force, not only price-wise, but also sentiment-wise. When new investors come into the space, it seems like they're bypassing the Ethereum killers, which often do have better technology than Ethereum's current offering. That is the truth. But they're still going straight for Ethereum anyway. And this brings up a very interesting point that I think Ethereum competitors need to consider. This market is not just about building a better product. It's about capturing the users and then the developers who will then subsequently bring more users and create a virtuous cycle for your own project and network. If no one uses your technology, it will be irrelevant no matter how great it is and how much better it is factually on paper than the competition. Now, right now, Ethereum is not challenged, at least not in this metric, which means work must be done in terms of evangelization, in terms of marketing, in terms of outreach, to put these so-called Ethereum killers in the forefront of new undecided investors and users' minds. Projects will not survive on their core investors forever because, honestly, you need more new dedicated users that are going to grow with you, not just the ones who were there from day one. So I'm rooting for the competition because Ethereum needs challengers and my, I'm really hopeful that it happens. Ladies and gentlemen, though, it is time for 404 Logic Not Found. And for those of you who are as of yet uninitiated in this little firecracker of a segment, I highlight notable tech-related fails or otherwise stupid moves in the world that need to get some attention. And speaking of attention, if you want to help this video get some attention from the YouTube algorithm robots, please do hit the like button and get subscribed because it tells those robots that you like what you're watching, you like what you're listening to, and other people might be interested also. So thank you for that in advance. Now, it is another week and another report of a significant exploit or hack that has robbed people of their crypto. And I have to say, this is getting out of control. Recently, a popular YouTuber and rapper, Highkey, with about 250,000 subscribers on YouTube, was hacked, and hackers promptly removed all of the videos on the channel, they changed the branding, and they began a live stream using an old video of Ethereum co-founder Vitalik Buterin. Now, this live stream, of course, was broadcast to subscribers and non-subscribers alike of what was once a verified YouTube channel belonging to High Key. But instead of the normal content, under the guise of an Ethereum scam, these hackers began to steal people's crypto. The live stream, like many others before it, was used to promise returns for those who sent Ether or Bitcoin to addresses shown on the stream's content. Now, as of the time of recording this video, it's believed that close to $75,000 worth of Ether and Bitcoin has been stolen from unsuspecting viewers of the stream. Now, there is a lot going on here, and that's the truth, but the story is simple. Both YouTubers themselves and YouTube the company are not doing nearly enough to stop this from happening. It starts with the YouTubers, the ones who own the account, who must have strong passwords and non-SMS two-factor authentication to have a verified YouTube account. It's your responsibility as a YouTuber to do this. These bigger accounts with big followings are targets for scammers to use as a conduit for their scam live streams, and it is their responsibility to make it as hard as possible to hack and take control of their account. Now, secondly, YouTube themselves must shoulder the majority of the blame here because their approach to date in terms of stamping out these scams has been really only punitive towards honest YouTubers and has allowed scammers to thrive almost unperturbed. Now, firstly, YouTube must mandate anyone with a verified YouTube account and live streaming ability unlocked to have a strong password and mandatory app-based 2FA. It's too easy to take over with a SIM swap. Secondly, YouTube must implement strict rules about account activity to stop this. Specifically, for example, 
if a YouTube account is signed in from a local IP and then quickly changes to a foreign IP or a drastic channel action is taken, like a total brand shift of cover photo, profile picture, or every video is removed all at once, YouTube should instantly lock the account's live streaming capabilities until further verification can be done that the account owner is in fact performing these actions. And finally, YouTube can tune its image recognition algorithm and text recognition algorithm to watch for full crypto addresses in video live streams and shut them down if they're being shown in a scammy way. Obviously, this whole thing can't keep happening and both parties, the YouTuber and YouTube themselves must be accountable for fixing the problem because people are getting scammed left and right. 404, logic not found. Now, in other news, the multi-billion dollar South Korean media and gaming giant. I don't know why that's always a tongue twister for me. Multi-billion dollar. Uh, this company, Nexon is what they're called. They're reportedly in the process of acquiring the somewhat defunct crypto exchange BitThumb. And I think that's how you pronounce the name, but it's very confusing. The exchange has, however, been at the center of a regulatory and legal maelstrom, uh, if you will, these days due to reported fraud perpetrated by an executive at BitThumb in the past. Now, despite all of this, though, all the drama, it seems that Nexon is intent on adding the largest South Korean crypto exchange to its portfolio of fintech and crypto investments. Now, this leads me to believe that there's a bigger story hidden in this narrative. What is Nexon, the media giant, planning that this strategy fits into? Is this just for profit, just an investment, or is it part of a larger plan to bring their media prowess to fore with the power of blockchain and crypto? I could very easily see NFTs or non-fungible token products being added into the mix very soon by Nexon, who has a lot of hands in gaming and media. So Nexon has a lot of opportunities in this regard, and we will have to see how it plays out. Now, moving on to Brave Browser, the privacy-focused ad-blocking browser and its privacy-friendly advertising system, they just got a huge boost in the form of the most popular YouTuber on earth joining the Verified Publisher program. Now, Mr. Beast, who has amassed a huge 50 million subscribers on YouTube, has joined the Brave ecosystem, which will allow his channels to receive tips and payments from Brave browser users using the native basic attention token as a verified publisher. In effect, the idea is that you can set up your browser, if you're using Brave, to auto-contribute basic attention token tips to your favorite verified publishers on platforms like YouTube to support their content. The same goes for Twitter. Of course, Mr. Beast likely doesn't need any more money but the result is far greater for Brave, who will now be exposed to the 50 million some odd people who watch Mr. Beast's content. So this is a huge bit of news for Brave as they continue to grow and continue to take on market share, and I'm super stoked for them. In other news, the popular non-custodial cryptocurrency swap and exchange service Shapeshift just released a generational update to their platform that brings unified access to decentralized exchanges and swap protocols across the board like Uniswap and Kyber. And all of these services that you have access to are decentralized options, so they're not custodial. What this means is that users can, directly from their hardware wallet, so no custodians, access a plethora of DeFi exchanges and perform trades to their heart's content, all while using cold storage. This is a true sight to behold. This is the ethos of crypto. This also means that Shapeshift is now not a custodian or a party to the trade whatsoever. They are simply a software company providing a, I guess, software tool for people to access this stuff. This means that this removes the requirement for Shapeshift to enforce KYC on their platform, whereby users must verify identity to use their service. 
this is also a step in the right direction. So I want to tip my hat to Shapeshift for taking the ethos of crypto in mind and making it a reality in their products and doing so in a legal fashion as well. I did also want to talk about VeChain, and this is a topic that I'm sure a lot of people will be excited about because I really haven't talked much about it on the channel. Now, I read a report today about the Mediterranean Hospital in Cyprus using VeChain's supply chain focused public network to keep track of staff's COVID-19 vaccinations with VeChain issued digital certificates. For projects like VeChain that have a functional product with wide applicability, I think that these types of use cases and things that can be shown in the news are really positive, and use cases pertaining to the distribution of medical devices, instruments, and products writ large are a fantastic way to show the functionality they've worked so hard to build. Now, I do have to caveat this excitement, though, by saying that issuing vaccine certificates at large on a blockchain is a very, very slippery slope for privacy and the abuse thereof. So this must be done with extreme care. And I am not advocating that vaccine certificates should be issued on blockchains really or anywhere, just so we're clear on that. Without adequate protections and power checks in place, I can in good conscience say that I'm supportive of large-scale issuance of vaccine certificates, but the theme I'm trying to convey here is that VeChain is starting to find its momentum in the medical field, not just for this type of implementation, but for other ones as well in the true supply chain part of it, moving medical equipment and vaccinations or medicines from point A to B to C to D. And this is a really interesting place to be at this moment in time, and it could end up being quite valuable for the adoption of VeChain in the public forum, which is much more important than the private forum. That said, folks, that's going to do it for Crypto Over Coffee today. I'm, I'm so appreciative of all the time that you spend watching or listening to my content, allowing me to be myself. And I wish you and your family a restful and happy weekend. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.